Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Welcome, everyone. Today, we have one of the co-founders of Pipedrive as a guest, Martin Hank. Now, what makes this podcast particularly interesting is that this is not only a very inspiring story, the story of Pipedrive, but it's also a story of one of the companies that we had an opportunity to meet and just weren't able to be part of their journey. To give you a little bit of background, I met Martin and his colleagues almost uh, six, seven years ago, I guess, in Germany as part of a seed camp event. And unfortunately, we weren't able to reach a consensus to be part of their their journey. And as a consequence, we, we ultimately didn't get to partake in their today's success. But what's really interesting about this interview today is how Martin shares how that experience was pivotal to the development and growth of Pipedrive to, to how we know it today. Because, and I'll, I won't spoil some of the other things, but how sometimes rejection can be a good thing, no matter how dire it might seem at the time. So with that, welcome to the podcast, Martin. Uh, yeah, uh, great to be here. So we always like to kick things off with a little bit about your background. And one of the interesting things about what uh, your background is, is that even though you're working for a tech company, when you graduated from Tallinn University, you had a degree in advertising and media, and your first job was as a newspaper project lead. And maybe you can walk us through how you went uh, thinking about your career in the early days and, and what you thought you were going to be when you left school. Sure. So I taught myself programming in high school, and I was kind of doing that uh, also in college and paying my bills with that. But I never went into computer science because I was really bad at math in high school. So I knew that I would never pass any of these exams. And uh, at some point, I also realized that uh, programming the way we do it these days, programming these uh, web apps, it's more closer to learning another language rather than being very deep math or physics or science and stuff. And unfortunately, it's still kind of very much required uh, in most colleges where uh, you can you can learn computer science. So going into advertising and uh, media was a, was a good choice for me as I could see a lot of that interactive side, uh, talking to customers and, and, uh, and that side of the business. But I kept coding on the side all the time, had my own small startups uh, already in college. And then, yeah, the, the first kind of proper job <laughs> was the job ad says internet specialist. And I go, well, <laughs> obviously that's me. So <laughs> I go to this uh, uh, job interview. Uh, turns out it's kind of more about uh, selling banner ads uh, at this uh, online newspaper. But I still got the job. Turned out wasn't uh, a very good salesperson. And then Ragnar, who turned out to be uh, one of the co-founders of Pipedrive five, six years later, he one day, uh, he was the guy that hired me. And um, a couple of months later, he called me into his office and said, we need to talk. And I was like, oh, shit, now, now I'm getting fired because the, uh, the sales wasn't really working for me. And he said, yeah, dude, you're really bad as a salesperson but uh, it seems that you're technically able, so maybe we can find you some other role. 
so kind of we transformed me uh, into being technical support for the salespeople. We started building these kind of interactive banner ads. And back in the day, that was all the rage. So all of these um, uh, companies that were selling real estate could update their listings on the banner automatically, which was good. So we didn't get fired. But that job didn't last for too long. Did some other stuff. Ragnar, again, uh, started his uh, startup uh, doing a social network for people that really like their pets. And uh, I joined that startup early on, uh, stayed for a couple of years. That didn't really work out. So it was one of the uh, biggest early startup failures in Estonia. And uh, out of the rubble of... This is uh, the United that, Dogs and Cats. Yes, United Dogs and Cats. And, uh, and what, was, do you, what do you think went wrong there? Because if you look at the the money that uh, companies like Dog Vacay and Rover have raised today and BarkBox, and you look at all these pet-based companies that are you know, generating lots of revenues right now, it, it's it's pretty obvious that there's money in pets. What what went wrong at United Dogs and Cats? What didn't? <laughs> I mean, it was uh, it's kind of early on, one of the first proper Silicon Valley type startups in Estonia. And uh, honestly, we didn't really know what we were doing. So we made um, a lot of mistakes. Uh, obviously, there was a, some decent traction as well. We were able to raise some money. And uh, we had kind of half a million registered users. So it wasn't all bad. And we learned a ton. But at the same time, the business model was not working or we were torn into too many different uh, directions. So on one hand, we should have been building the product for these users, these people that are into pets. But at the same time, we spent a lot of our time and energy on kind of building these advertising campaigns because we were also supposed to make a lot of money. And doing these things at the same time, wasn't really scaling. And then we just kind of smartly added another revenue stream of premium users that we also needed to serve. So instead of focusing on uh, one segment of users and trying to get them engaged and, and uh, the social network growing, we were kind of split between all of these different things. And in the end, it didn't really work out. So chasing after money too early, not really making any and in the end, it, uh, I felt it was better to face the truth and, uh, and close it down. Wow. And and how much money had you raised? Well, now, like looking back, it uh, it's not much, but because we still had our own currency back in the day, it was in millions of crowns. So uh, it was kind of a big deal. Now it, it was, I think it, overall, it was like 100,000 euros or something like that. So it wasn't kind of enormously big sums of money. But since um, one of the investors was also state-based in Estonia, and uh, some people took the uh, opportunity to point fingers and say, oh, yeah, like these guys were uh, spending all of that uh, state money on, on stuff that wasn't really working. Yeah, that's, it's got to be really tough to to have to face up to that. And we're, you know, if, if you we look at the time uh, when that was going on, it was a very difficult socially and with your family, that, that failure was entrepreneurship. You know, that was a time when Skype was already successful, but it was right before TransferWise was successful. So was there still a stigma about entrepreneurship at the time? So there wasn't a stigma about entrepreneurship, but there was definitely a big stigma around failure. So you could be an entrepreneur as long as you didn't fail. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I was lucky because Ragnar, the founder CEO of that company, got all of that shit in media and, and socially he had a really, really tough time. And another PyDrive founder, the other Martin, like he got a lot of shit because he was uh, the last man standing at the company and had to kind of shut it all down. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was definitely much harder on them. But yeah, it, 
What advice? It was a kind of a not a very good time to fail uh, yeah. at the startup in Estonia. Fair enough. And and what advice? I mean, this is a funny question because nobody listens to a podcast with the view of how to fail. But if you had to give advice to a founder about how to set things up in a way that if things don't go the right way, they they can handle it better. What advice would you give them? looking at the lessons you learned towards the end days of, of the company? I mean, we could have probably handled the uh, the PR better. So some companies were founded on the rubble of, of United Dogs and Cats, and it also gave an opportunity to some people to kind of point fingers. And, and uh, so we could have managed the media better. And also we could have... <laughs> But then, kind of uh, in hindsight, it's uh, it's always easy to say that these things. But some of our investors were uh, really disappointed in us, and mm-hmm. uh, and these relationships uh, got really toxic. So it wasn't only about uh, the media picking up the story, but there were also some public fights on the media between the founders and the investors. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't good. Uh, looking back, we probably could have done a better job finding investors or uh, dealing with the investor relations among other many, many things that kind of went wrong. And good thing was we learned a lot so, uh, from all of these mistakes. So when we uh, started PipeDrive, we were able to uh, avoid many of these mistakes. Okay. Well, talk us through the moment that you decided to start PipeDrive. Why? How did you recover the enough energy to go down the path of starting a new company with Ragnar and crew? How, how Walk us through that whole genesis. Like, okay, you have your bruises from... United Dogs and Cats, you decide you want to give it another go. How did you identify the market? How did you build it? And and the early days. Sure. So the energy wasn't really a problem. Somehow kind of we kept uh, starting these companies uh, all the time. So as soon as United Dogs was done, we already had uh, the next one spinning up. And because during United Dogs, we uh, got some sales consultancy from uh, two guys called Timo and Urmas. Uh, we knew them and uh, and they're kind of big sales consultancy. So uh, with our new project management app, we approached them and asked them if they wanted to be customers. And they said, no, we don't really need that thingy, but kind of we've been thinking of building a CRM that salespeople would actually want to use. Are you interested in partnering up and then doing that with them? And since we didn't really have anything better to do, we said, well, yeah, why not? Let's try it. So the sales guys were actually the ones that came up with the idea and uh, and felt the need uh, to build something like that because it wasn't really obvious. Pretty much everyone else said that you guys are totally stupid. Like, who needs another CRM? There's already 200 of them around and like why build another one? Uh, but because they had been doing sales consultancy for 10 years, they saw all of the struggles. They saw how bad all of these tools were. No one was really willing to use them. And all of the salespeople were using post-it notes, laying business cards on the table and building their pipelines like these. So, um, yeah, they, they saw the struggle and uh, decided that someone needs to build something that the salespeople would actually want to use. Yeah. And remind me of early days for you. Like, was it was it <clears throat> you had a vision of what the product should look like and you just went or did you experiment just early days of trying to figure out what the customer wanted? Yeah, so in the beginning we uh, we did a lot of prototyping and uh, and we uh, we were determined to come up with this kind of minimum viable product that we could build quickly and validate and and do all of these new lean things that were coming up eight years ago. Yeah, and 
we didn't like any of the prototypes that we made. Mm -hmm. uh, so we couldn't get excited and we were sure that kind of if we don't like them, like no salespeople will ever use them. And then through these weeks and weeks of struggles and then trying to figure this out, we finally took a step back and, and started thinking. So whenever salespeople were forced to use a tool that they didn't like, uh, what were they falling back to? And uh, oftentimes they either fell back to using a spreadsheet or then oftentimes they also would um, build these pipelines with post-it notes on the wall or kind of lay these uh, business cards on the table and, uh, and build the pipeline like this. And that got us thinking, like, why not uh, make that into software? So if they already like to do that, let's make um, a board like that uh, the first screen in the software um, so they could imitate what they do in real life but do that in Pipedrive. Mm. And we built that screen, this Kanban board for salespeople, and we showed it to some salespeople and they all said, yeah, well, it's kind of missing reporting and missing this and that, but I really like the pipeline view. Can I keep using it? And that was kind of the first time ever we saw a salesperson being excited about the CRM, mm. uh, which <laughs> gave us the confidence to keep going and, and uh, keep building it. And what's really interesting is that when we first met, you had already about two years worth of work leading up to um, before you moved to California. And and you had, I think when we were speaking, you had told me that, yes, you had some early evangelists, but you didn't actually have like exponential growth. It was a bit stalled. Do you want to share with us what, what, were, what were the, if you look back at that one to two year period, what was the the reason why it was stalling? Was it a product reason? Was it a messaging reason? What, what was the key things that made people love it, but not enough to really evangelize it? Sure. So kind of eight years ago in Estonia, you could find really good programmers, really good designers. So we could build this product and it was uh, really good. And uh, the people that were using it, they liked it. So we had very good retention, very good customer feedback but we just couldn't get it to grow. Hmm. So a year and a half into the company, we started getting 10 new paying customers every month and 20 bucks per customer. It wasn't really a good business. Hmm. So uh, we really tried hard to change that. We, we did many things, kind of improved the product, uh, rebuilt our website uh, and did many other things. And we just couldn't change that pace. So we couldn't move the needle. It, it just kept being 10 new customers every month. Hmm. And that, that went on for several months where everything was flattened and uh, we couldn't get it to grow. And this is where we were running out of ideas. We had tried everything that we could think of. We were running out of our early uh, angel money. And that at that moment, we realized that, okay, we just can't keep doing the same thing and, and expecting different results. So we need help. And the, the first idea was to get into some accelerators. And this is also where we uh, tried getting into seed camp, got to the finals, didn't get in, tried Techstars New York, got to the interviews, didn't get in, tried White Combinator in California, got to the interviews, didn't get in. So like that was also uh, a strange time where we realized that those shit were so bad, we can't even get into an accelerator. So um, it was <laughs> a moment where we could have failed and, and given up, but somehow we were able to decide not to give up. Yeah. And... Uh, and keep going. So we uh, took one of the founders, Ragnar, uh, sent him to Silicon Valley. We had heard that there are some companies that know what they're doing and there might be some investors around. And we told him, like, go for two weeks, try to get us an investor or advisor or something. And uh, he ended up staying for three months. It's 
slept on other people's couches because you know Silicon Valley even seven years ago was extremely expensive mm-hmm. and just kept knocking knocking on people's doors and making cold calls and cold emails until he get us into Angelpad. Mm-hmm. And uh, Angelpad is a accelerator in San Francisco. We had never heard of it in Estonia, but the locals said that it's really good and it was smaller, more boutique than uh, Y Combinator and uh, it was more focused on B2B startups, which fit us really well. And we got into Angelpad and then we moved some of the founders to San Francisco for a couple of months. So because there were five of us, we could take turns. So I didn't spend too much time there, but then Tim and Dorma stayed for longest and kind of Ragnar spent a long, long time there. And uh, this uh, three months during Angelpad, that really transformed uh, how the business was growing. So in the early days, we would all, always see the time before Angelpad and after Angelpad where it completely drastically uh, started uh, changing the pace of growth. Yeah. So this is probably a good a good point to, to talk about a couple of things. The first one is, you know, SeedCamp has evolved. So those that are listening, we're not an accelerator anymore. And and it's interesting to see how the needs of, of startups has changed over the years. And, and that's why part of the reason why we've evolved. And unfortunately, I wish we had met you in our current iteration back in those days. But the other interesting thing about this is that you had a couple of really difficult decisions to make in this transition to the United States because it wasn't just about um, getting into an accelerator. It was also about moving families. And one of your co-founders had surgery, didn't he? Do you want to walk us through some of the personal challenges that you guys had? Sure. So, yeah, <laughs> that was a, a really tough time for uh, some of us. So, as you said, one of the founders had uh, brain surgery right before uh, going to Angelpad. So it wasn't clear at all if he could, if he would make it even. And um, he came out of surgery and said, guys, uh, I still want to go and I, I still want to do this. Um, so he <laughs> came along and, uh, and spent months and months uh, in San Francisco still recovering. Another founder just found out that uh, there's another baby coming. So had to leave his uh, wife at home, expecting the baby while well, uh, being in uh, in San Francisco. Also, some of us had a higher uh, previous salary level and uh, living expenses that Piper really couldn't cover. So there were situations of cars taken away, gas turned off, and uh, and all kinds of uh, drama uh, in these days. So it took a lot of persistence from kind of Timo and Dormas uh, to just stay in San Francisco and believe in the uh, in the project and uh, keep going. Although personally, it was a really, really difficult time for them. Yeah. You guys really got a lot out of Angel's Pad and your work ethic and your your advantage, uh, taking advantage of, of the program was very different than that of, of some of the other people there. Do you want us to walk us through that? Because I thought it was pretty, both very inspiring, but also very funny. Yeah, I'm not sure how funny it is, but we did notice, and and we've seen that uh, later as well, that the companies that had traveled to San Francisco from from abroad took a lot more advantage of this program compared to people that kind of were already in Silicon Valley, and uh, for them it wasn't a big deal to get into this accelerator. And they were just kind of took the bar from wherever they were living and then just uh, spent some time at this co-working space, but. For the, the founders, and especially for us, because we weren't the uh, typical 20-somethings, because we all had families that were kind of left back in, in Europe, and many of them made uh, big sacrifices for you know, being able to be there. So uh, 
anytime we had any office hours, gonna, we were always kind of booking all of these times, uh, standing uh, at the door uh, as soon as we could uh, get some FaceTime with any, um, any mentor there, we just uh, took it. We were always present at kind of all of the office hours. And uh, if the, the next company didn't bother to show up, then we would take the next hour as well. So because we had sacrificed quite a bit uh, to be there, we also kind of took a lot more advantage and we got so much more out of it. And if you look at uh, AngelPad's portfolio, uh, I would say that most of the companies that uh, became successful after being in AngelPad, like uh, uh, like, like uh, Postmates, like Buffer, like uh, Mongol, all of these companies started by people that had traveled to San Francisco from, from abroad and uh, probably took the program also more seriously. Yeah. So it sounds like there's a little bit of the harder the journey, the better the outcome. Could be, yeah. It's just if you sacrifice so much to be somewhere, you, you better take advantage of this. Now, with, um, with the companies that you met at AngelPad and, and some of the things that I think you mentioned that you learned there, there must have been some things in common in terms of lessons learned about customer acquisition, about paid mechanisms, growth hacking. Do you want to walk us through some of those early experiments, lessons that you learned, things that worked to drive the customer growth? Sure. So the interesting thing about AngelPad was that we already had the product and we didn't really change that at all during this program. But we did change a lot around the funnel of uh, signing up and uh, around our marketing. And that was that was a really interesting uh, lesson for us. We had put uh, obstacles on the way of kind of people uh, being able to sign up and then kind of really utilize PyDrive without realizing it. Because we felt that everything was all right. And the product was totally fine by that moment. But signing up wasn't as easy as we thought it was. So we, we started really uh, removing these obstacles during AngelPad. We didn't ever get so far as to really start tuning any, any paid advertising or any of that. Didn't really have the uh, <laughs> didn't have the funds for it anyway, but just the uh, the organic growth was hampered by our roadblocks that we had. So on the website we had a demo version of PyTribe that you could use without uh, having to kind of even give us uh, an email address. So people would come to the website, use the demo version, and then leave and never come back. Now, obviously, it wasn't a very good thing. So it was technically a marvel, sample data, all of that stuff, right? because there was no onboarding, uh, no way to get these customers back. We just lost all of them, or many, most of them. So we got rid of that and uh, forced people to sign up for the real trial. We we had learned from a blog post from, from a competitor that if you have a button saying, uh, see plans and pricing, uh, rather than sign up for the, uh, for the trial, then people are more likely to click on it which was true, but at the same time, on the next page, they would have to choose a plan to sign up with. And they had no idea how many users they would need, what kind of features they would need. So they couldn't make up their mind of which plan to choose. So they would just close the, <laughs> close the window, uh, go away, and never come back. So we uh, got rid of that. We chose a plan for them in the background so uh, they could just uh, sign up for the trial and then change the plan by the end of the trial when they had a much better idea of what they would need. Then there were a long list of settings uh, along the way that you had to do before you could add your first deal. So people would sign up and then they would have to build their pipeline, put in the stages, pick their default currency, default time zone, stuff like that. So many people never got through all of these settings. They just gave up and went away and never came back. And we got rid of all of these settings and uh, chose everything uh, for them in the background automatically. They could change these later if they needed to. 
And as a result, people went from the website to sign up to kind of adding their first deal within seconds. And they could see how easy it is to add a deal, how nice the interface is, how visual it all is, uh, much faster. So we plugged all of these holes in the funnel. And then also the website itself, it was very verbose. There was a lot of text on this website. And we felt it's good. Um, but uh, the people at DangerPath said, well, kind of, no one wants to read all of that crap. Like, there's too much of it. So um, one night, Timo and I took a six-pack of beer, and we installed Optimizely on the website. This kind of a piece of code you put in the website, and then you can start making visual copies of it. And you can measure engagement. So kind of you show kind of half of the visitors one version and half of the visitors the other version. And then you can make alterations in one version, and then you can measure which one of them performs better. So that night, we kept having these beers. And uh, the more we had, the more braver we got. And the more we took away from one of the versions. So by the end of the night, we had removed uh, the top menu, the company logo, almost all of the text from the website. So it was very minimalistic. So it had this very exciting dashboard in the middle and the big green button, uh, sign up for the free trial. And lo and behold, <laughs> that new version started converting three times better than the old one. So overnight, we started getting three times as many signups with this version. So that was good. And also kind of during AngelPad, we got um, some exposure, some people with a lot of followers uh, tweeted about us. We, uh, we started getting uh, signups from uh, Google Chrome Web Store. So Chrome built uh, an app store into their browser. And since we were one of the first business apps on it, then you know, we started getting a lot more traffic from, uh, from there. And all of these things combined kind of unlocked our growth. We started getting so many more signups, people liking PyDrive, talking to their friends about it, and then this flywheel really started going. So before getting into AngelPad, some people in some accelerators asked us, so you have 100 companies total, uh, 100 customers total. What do you need to do in order to get the 100 new customers every month? And we said, well, yeah, well, that's kind of, that's insane. That's kind of stupid talk. Like it's, that's, that's not possible. But by the end of AngelPad, we actually started getting 100 new customers every month. So it was possible. We were just uh, laying all of these roadblocks on the way uh, without knowing it. Yeah, those are some great insights. And it's, it's really exciting to see how you, how you optimized around those. And so you started getting this growth curve and you started probably having um, some some interest now from investors post AngelPad. How long did it take post uh, 100 monthly customers before you started getting interest for your next round? So it took longer than we expected. By the end of AngelPad, we couldn't really raise any money from Silicon Valley investors. So we were growing many times faster than before, but it wasn't uh, anywhere close to the uh, rate that people there were expecting. Hmm. And it's still... And it still was a stupid idea of another CRM, like who needs it? So um, we came back to Estonia. We worked for a winter and we got to a thousand customers total and we got to profitability. And then we had this choice to make. Uh, do we stay profitable, kind of grow slowly, hire when we can, or do we try again? And um, we sat down, all of the founders kind of looked at each other and said, well, shit, like, of course we want to try again. So let's, let's try and raise money. And at that moment, uh, it was kind of three or four months later uh, when we were profitable and we didn't need that money. A lot of people really wanted to give us money. Uh, so we were able to raise $700,000 with Skype calls. So we never even met these people in person before they acquired the money because the, the numbers were so much better. We didn't need it. Um, so uh, 
from that moment on, kind of raising money became much easier. Hmm. And do you want to share any any early investors that made part of those those rounds? Sure. Yeah. We uh, the the first angel we had was really uh, a friends, fools, and family money uh, from from Pep. He was in the company with Timo and Dormas uh, doing the sales consultancy. So he was, um, he had a very good feeling for us and uh, I still admire his foresight or maybe it was just, uh, uh, he was naive, but he believed in us so much that he put all of his uh, savings into PipeDrive. And then also because Timo and Dormas left his consultancy to uh, run PipeDrive full-time at some point, then he also lost his consultancy um, as a result. We actually shared the offices. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in the beginning, we had this kind of tiny little space in, in Pep's office behind the cupboard. And uh, over over the months, Piper started growing, and we kept moving that cupboard forward until by the end of the <laughs> by the end of uh, that year, we had taken over the entire office, and his business was kind of uh, going away as a result. I'm sure he's he's totally fine <laughs> now that Piper is doing uh, as well as it's doing, but it must have required quite a bit of uh, self control uh, during that period. And then also kind of uh, out of the uh, angels, uh, I would mention uh, Andy McLaughlin, who's probably by now pretty famous as this British guy in San Francisco yeah, that has work. invested. Yeah, now in Uncorked, yeah, but at that, that moment he was uh, still kind of angel investing and did some pretty good deals uh, to all of these up and coming European com- uh, companies that mm-hmm. visited Silicon Valley. So he invested in us, uh, in Intercom and Postmates, <laughs> did some really good deals early on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, he's great, and he's been part of the Seed Camp story as well. So, shout out to, to Andy. Now, if we, if we bring it back to um, some of the experiments you ran, do you have any advice and thoughts about how to structure pricing early on? You know, you talked about how you had first done something that would um, default people into one, so that they didn't have uh, decision paralysis. But how how did you guys eventually figure out the right price for your service? <laughs> so first of all, you will never get your pricing right anyway. So uh, I don't think anyone in the world feels that, oh yeah, now, now we have perfect pricing and we're happy with it. Mm-hmm. There's always places where you leave money on the table and there's always places where you're too expensive and uh, it's... I think it's uh, it's naive to hope that you get it right uh, at some point. Yeah. Uh, we have experimented with our pricing a lot. We have changed the system uh, many times. When we first started, we had these uh, pricing buckets mm-hmm. where we had a single user, five users, uh, up to 12 users and so forth. And uh, they had fixed prices per package. Mm-hmm. And that was good in some level, but it also created these uh, situations where people really didn't want to add that sixth user. If you if you got to the limit of the first plan, then kind of adding that one more user uh, became really painful. At some point, we stopped doing that and went to uh, just uh, seat-based pricing, so per user per month, and we had just a single tier. And that was very simple, very straightforward, and we kept raising that seat price. So pretty much every year, we uh, we raised it. So we started at $3 per user per month, and by now, it's um, it's kind of 15 but so kind of every year we uh, we would raise it and then a few years in we also added two more tiers so it's still today's per user per month but you have different options of what kind of functionality you would need so it, it's either 15 dollars per month or 29 dollars per month or there's also one tier that is even more expensive mm. 
So if if you um if you kind of look back in in the history of of pipe drive, could you say that the pricing has been something that you've continued to experiment with, or is that something that has now you're operating within such a fine margin of 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 evolution that that it's not no longer the key thing that you guys are worried about? I'm sure that we will keep uh, experimenting with the pricing. So one of the things that affecting us a lot is that we're really global. So only a third of our business is in the U.S. So um, our customers are all over the uh, all over the globe, and uh, the uh, the price is the same. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's really affecting us in in many ways. So in the U.S., we're probably still leaving a lot of money on the table, mm-hmm. while uh, in Brazil, that is also very big for us. It's uh, it's way too expensive. So um, uh, there's still a lot of experimentation coming, I'm sure, with the pricing, and uh, there's so much uh, still to do. We we keep experimenting, we we keep testing, we keep analyzing uh, what we can do, and that 80,000 customers pricing can have a really big effect still. Well, maybe walk us through internationalization then, because I mean that that is an area that I think many companies are thinking about, and and how do they manage? How, how did you guys think about that? How did you uh, initiate? Different geographies. Did you have to send anybody over to to those geographies to set them up? What are your thoughts and advice on how to internationalize? Sure. So when we first started, we knew that we need to be very global because Estonia has only 1.3 million people. So having a self service and uh, and very affordable SaaS business, uh, local market is non-existent. So it was in English since the start, very global. Anyone could sign up and start paying for it. And we had also decided not to localize because in the previous startup, we knew how painful it is uh, to deal with all of these kind of localization issues. So we knew that we don't don't want to do that. It's going to stay in English. But pretty early on in 2011, we started getting these customers from Brazil. And some someone had found it. They started uh, spreading the word and kind of more and more companies from Brazil would sign up. And they would, on one hand, they loved Pipedrive. They just raved about it and spread the word, and it was amazing. On the other hand, they complained a lot that we didn't have a Portuguese version of Pipedrive. And they said, guys, you need to understand, like, in every office we have people that really don't speak English, and uh, they also want to use Pipedrive, so you need to localize. And uh, we resisted for a while, but they kept twisting our, our arm until we gave up. And we, we localized, so the second language was Brazilian Portuguese. And... Uh, after that, once you add your first language or the second language, then uh, the rest is uh, easier. So we kept adding languages. And um, for a while, that was uh, all we did. So we uh, localized the website, localized the app, but uh, didn't really send anyone to any of the uh, countries. Well, we, we did send people to the U.S. That was the only country where we actually went to physically. All of the other countries, they just happened. And when we saw user uh, uptake in a, in a certain geo, like um, like more uh, companies coming up in, in Germany or France or kind of Italy, then we would have, uh, we would add the local language to support the growth. Um, so by now we have like 14, 15 different languages. And then in some markets where we saw that it could have a bigger impact, we started doing uh, support locally. So today we offer support uh, in, in Portuguese, in German, and uh, uh, adding local uh, payment methods in some countries where they were more uh, relevant. For example, in Brazil, in Germany, uh, people don't want to pay with international credit cards that much. So this level of localization went deeper. But outside of the U.S., now we have one person in Brazil, one person in Mexico, um, 
but that's that's about it. We we never in really physically bent into any markets uh, other than the U.S. Hmm. That's very interesting and a good good way to describe how how you tackled that issue. Now, if we bring it back to you on LinkedIn, you have three different title changes over the last eight and a half years, and you've gone from CTO in the early days to head of customer support and then to head of product management and. I don't know if those three things are things that I would normally like normally think are a career progression for anyone. And I appreciate that as a co-founder, you have to do everything. But maybe walk us through your evolution as a person. So how many people are in Pipedrive today and your evolution as a person into the role that you have today? Sure. So um, today we have almost 500 people, something like that. It's uh, <laughs> recently been difficult to keep track, but it's definitely more than uh, 450 uh, across the globe and uh, approaching 500. And we started as five, uh, eight years ago. So it's it's been pretty good uh, growth over the years. So for me personally, yeah, when we started, I was the, the, the CTO. Fancy title didn't really mean much. I was the most technical person at that moment and wrote some go- code and told uh, the other developer what to do. And Pretty soon we started having customers and uh, obviously the uh, the software wasn't really ready for them. So they needed a lot of support and handholding. And I turned out to be the person that could speak technical, but also could speak to people. <laughs> so uh, I was able to translate their problems and, um, and expectations to the uh, developers and also help them out when they had problems. So uh, at some point we realized that I was doing support pretty much full time and the other uh, founder, uh, Martin, had progressed technically and was doing more and more of the uh, the CTO stuff. So we switched and I took over uh, customer support and ran that for three, three and a half years. And that was a really good time to do something like that. So uh, having a co-founder do customer support and talk to customers and teach the, uh, the first team of uh, customer support people really got us closer to the customers. Whenever they would reach out, they uh, they saw that, okay, yeah, there's a co-founder talking to them. I was able to uh, understand much better what the customers needed, uh, what the problems were, what their hopes were, and we were able to translate that into the product. And then some years later, we also realized that there's this role called uh, product manager, which we didn't uh, really have before. We had uh, engineers, and then we had people walking around the company telling them what to do. And at that moment, when team had grown big enough to be to need product managers and make it more official then um, it was a good opportunity for me to take that role and and start growing that team and then bring in yet again another martin to run customer support because at that moment customer support needed something uh, other than kind of well, i was able to give where like he came in and he really built the big team managed to hire really, really great people at a very good pace, uh, scale this organization, put in kind of, uh, layers of management and, uh, and quality controls and, and stuff that I wasn't really good at. While at the same time, I was able to build up this uh, really, really good uh, product management organization where we uh, hired product managers, product designers. Uh, and uh, at that moment in Estonia, it was still just beginning. Uh, wasn't really possible to hire many experienced product managers, so we figured it all, all out while we we were go, uh, going and growing. Um, so that was a really good uh, four years in Estonia, building up that function. So, if you gave us today the the core foundation of what product management means to you in PipeDrive, 
How would you describe it and what advice would you give to founders who are trying to establish a product management practice internally? Yeah, so product management is a really tricky thing where there's no good definition of it that is true for all of the companies. Every company has a slightly different definition of what uh, product management is. For me, I always tell people that for me, product management is taking all of these ideas that taken separately are all good. So most of the ideas that are floating around in a company for product improvements, for kind of new features and stuff like that, all of them are really good. And taken separately, they're all no-brainers. And it's the role of the product manager to take all of these great ideas and still prioritize them and figure out which ones we need to do and which ones we need to say no to. And usually you need to say no to 95% of all of these ideas. So that's the role of the product manager, saying no for (laughs) for the most part, and then also really deeply understanding the customer. So talking to customers as much as possible, really deeply understanding what they need and what their problems are and how we could help. And despite saying no uh, so many times, I, I really like to tell everybody that we do listen to our customers. We mostly don't really do what exactly they're asking us. And uh, for the most part, we tell them no uh, to anything they ask us, but we do listen to them. And uh, what I mean by that is they come in, they usually come in with a request and they, they come uh, with a solution in hand. And it's our job to listen to them, also listen to the solution, but then keep asking questions until we really deeply understand what their problem is that they're trying to solve. And then gather all of these problems, try to understand the unifying theme there, and then try to come up with a better solution that could serve them better than the solution that they came with. And if we're able to do that, then we do our job. And our job is to understand the problem and then come up with uh, really good product solutions. Uh, Our job is not to just do anything they ask us, but it is our job to understand their problems and then uh, provide really, really good solutions. No, I like that definition of product management. Well, um, you know, I wish I could keep on asking you 500 more questions about Pipedrive. I mean, I guess maybe uh, one last general one, um, and I'll leave it up to you to decide how you want to answer it. But what are the what are the top three lessons that you would share with young Martin uh, about building a company based upon the lessons that you've accumulated since the launch of Pipedrive? <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. Um, I've lately been asked that uh, quite a few times, and uh, somehow these uh, these lessons or uh, suggestions keep being different. So I haven't really gotten to a point where I can blurt out three things that I've learned and kind of uh, become knowledgeable about. So three things. So that's uh, that's a really good question. So. I guess this grit is is really important. So being able to be persistent and not um, give up easily uh, is really important. And I think it can be developed. Uh, if you think about it and, and take things seriously and also take care of yourself, that's, uh, that's a very important part. So avoid burnout, uh, avoid killing yourself, <laughs> try to get good sleep, try to eat well, try to kind of exercise. These things all really translate into how efficient you are. So sometimes it seems to me that people overemphasize long hours and this 
ability to be creative and smart and uh, just come up with kind of really good solutions and be efficient is forgotten in this uh, pursuit of trying to work 20-hour days. And I'm not saying that working hard is not important. Of course it is. And in the early days, obviously, you need to put in a lot more hours because usually that's the only thing you have. When you start a new startup, the, the biggest thing you can invest in it is your time. But at the same time, you being uh, in a state where you're not healthy anymore and haven't really slept and not uh, thinking straight, these hours at some point become less efficient, less productive. And I'm pretty sure that from a certain point on, you start actually uh, being kind of negative, having a negative effect on the, on the company rather than a positive effect. So yeah, being persistent and kind of working hard and, uh, and doing all of those things, but kind of at the same time, taking care of yourself. I think that's that's really important. And as a last thing, I, I probably would say that <laughs> try to uh, get along with people. Sometimes founders tend to be very passionate, at least uh, was true for me, kind of being really passionate, really emotional, taking very everything very seriously and being very vocal about my stuff. I think uh, sometimes didn't serve me well, uh, left the, the wrong impression to uh, some people. And I think this can also be managed. So obviously you need to be passionate. You need to take your company very seriously, but at the same time, you also need to take care of that kind of other people don't scare away from you. And, uh, and these uh, relationships are really, really important. Getting anything done in, in this world requires a team of people and getting, uh, getting along and kind of getting people to follow you and, and work with you is really, really important. Yeah, that's great advice. Great advice. Well, we always like to wrap up with some fun questions you know, you've, you've, you've traveled the world, you're obviously from Estonia, and you have seen a lot of, of uh, the, the passion that people have globally for entrepreneurship. If you could start your life all over again in a country, what country would you pick and why? But this is after you don't have to work anymore. Hmm. So... Well, right now, because I'm, I'm based in, in Portugal, I would, I would definitely pick Portugal. Lisbon is uh, incredible and beautiful city, beautiful people, great climate. Everything is, <laughs> is really nice. So um, in that sense, I would now definitely start over here in Lisbon. But when it comes to really starting out as a startup entrepreneur, and uh, and getting just getting started, I would actually still pick Estonia because that's uh, an incredible place to build new companies, and so that was a was a really good place to be uh, at that moment. So you you know you shared with us how you went through your three different roles and 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 your ability to listen to the customer, and that's probably a whole bunch of skills that you have that maybe can be articulated as empathy, you know, patience, communication. If if you had to pick a super skill that you could optimize around, like think about uh, video games where you can pick skills. If you could pick a skill that you could like triple down on right now, that would just like just make you five hundred times better, like an almost superhuman skill level. What would that skill be? It would probably be focus, because uh, that's something that I struggle with. Uh, because I, I always have kind of a million ideas going on uh, at the same time in my head and jumping from one thing to another, um, trying to multitask and all that stuff. That's not really good for your productivity. So if I could pick one power 
then I would uh, pick the power to be able to really focus uh, on one thing um, for days and hours. Obviously, sometimes I'm able to do that, but it's uh, it's not very easy for me. So uh, I would develop that skill. Cool. Okay. Work-life balance. Fact or fiction? It depends on the uh, time in the company. So uh, today, I have a really good work-life balance. I think it was somewhere around year four when I was able to take a vacation in a way that I, I turned off my phone and I knew that I wasn't needed. Whatever happened, they could handle it. So <laughs> uh, from from that point on, uh, the work-life balance had actually become better. But in the beginning of a company, it's, that's probably a myth. All of us in the in the first couple of years at PyTribe had a lot of struggles with that. Yeah, fair enough. All right, final question. What technology that we have visibility on today do you think will drastically change the future 10 years from now to the point where we might not recognize the future? There's going to be probably a couple of things, but uh, the latest where I was totally blown away is augmented reality or mixed reality or however we call it. And it's gotten to a point where it's really, really difficult to identify if something that you're seeing is real or uh, computer generated into that world. And uh, I would say that some company will come out with uh, kind of mixed reality glasses uh, in the next 10 years where people will have a really difficult time understanding if the stuff they're seeing is real or not. And that's going to change how we interact with computers drastically. And there are other kind of interface things that uh, are probably coming that will play into that. So Elon Musk keeps talking about that uh, neural lace and, uh, and promising it uh, coming very soon. So if, uh, if the interface between us and the computers gets uh, better and better, this will completely change how we live our lives. And then probably we won't recognize life in 10 years at all. Yeah, no, it's, uh, <clears throat> it's going to be very interesting to see how much of what we see will be a series of digital overlays on our day, on our way to work and our way in holidays and, and everything else. So um, I agree with you there. That's going to be a very interesting science fiction future. Martin, thank you so much for joining us. It's been amazing. It's been super fun to hearing your story. It's incredible to hear sort of the background of, of pipe drive, uh, your evolution and, you know, some of the humbling moments within your journey. And uh, I thank you very much for, for sharing it with us. Yeah, it was, uh, was really great talking to you. Great. Well, with that, guys, stay tuned for the next episode. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.